I, I guess by way of introduction, I remember, you know, the first time my wife and I came here, I think it was possibly 1999, I'm not sure. And we came pulling our little old 1954 uh, trailer that we still have and, <laughs> and, um, and, and spent a weekend here way back then. And you guys have always supported us since, and it's a real blessing, and we're grateful. Um, on top of that, uh, I, I think maybe for those who don't know me too well, I can give just a very brief word of testimony in that both my parents are Jewish believers in Jesus. They're, um, they're in nursing home right now, not in the best of health, but even now, to the last of their days, they are seeking to uh, honor and live for the Lord, which is wonderful to see. Um, they became believers in England, both of them as immigrants. My father from Bombay and my mother from Berlin. And they both were witnessed to by Christians who loved them and just shared the gospel with them. Here they are, you know, and they're around 20 years old or maybe a little younger and, and uh, actually a little younger. And... Uh, both came to faith independently, and then they met each other in the church of a man who he and his wife had ministered for a number of years in Jerusalem and had developed a tremendous heart for both the Arabs and for the Jews. They had actually rescued four Arab girls from difficult situations and adopted them, and my dad was engaged to one of them, and he was on the platform of this church, and he noticed this visitor at the back. And he was supposed to announce his engagement to one of these Arab girls. And he just saw her, and he had this funny feeling about it. And a couple weeks later, the engagement fell through. It wasn't him who canceled, but her. And, um, and a year later, he started dating my mother. So... There's a kind of a story of the Lord putting them together, uh, kind of miraculous. They were in that church because of the pastor's love for the Jewish people. They ended up in ministry to the Jewish people in London, in England. And uh, my father used to, we lived in Hammersmith, if you, that's kind of uh, west London and and they used my dad used to drive to East London where the majority of Jewish people then lived a lot of them in poverty because a lot of them were refugees from the war and the mission there closed because those people were now all getting jobs and moving out to regular neighborhoods and uh, and my father was offered to come to either Canada or to Sydney or to, I mean, to Australia, Sydney, or Vancouver, Canada, and felt the Lord was leading him there. And so that's how my family ended up being in Vancouver. And while I was still in London at seven years old, I remember reading a little book that said, tell me the answer why. And at the back of the book, it challenged me, will you make the Lord Jesus your Lord and Savior? And that night, at, I think around 9 p.m. at night, um, when I was supposed to be in bed with the lights out, 
um, I gave my heart to the Lord on that day. And, uh, and so the Lord has led me through various things, and my wife, through various things, brought us together. My wife is also a Jewish believer in Jesus, and she came to faith through people witnessing to her in love, just the same old way. They didn't take courses in Jewish evangelism or anything like that. And, um, and, and uh, we ended up ourselves in ministry to the Jewish people and have been now for 25 years. Um, in our ministry, I, um, I, I, like your pastor said, I've been involved in various things. And let's see how it goes. Oh. No, I guess the next slide would show us. Oh, there we go. Uh, it's uh, okay. Must be there. We go. Um, it um, since since I while we were in England, part of the ministry's vision for me was to get. Uh, a theological advanced degree. So that's when I enrolled at the University of Exeter and, and got on track to do the uh, doctorate. And that has, you know, led me upon our return to Canada, to, to Seattle rather, to be involved in three things. One is the Messianic Ministry in Vancouver, Canada, taking over the uh, work that my dad was doing up there with the Jewish believers. The other one is a teaching ministry, and it's not limited to this, but the MJTA is a, a Messianic Jewish Theological Academy in Berlin, Germany, that I've had the privilege of teaching a Zoom class in, and I'm slated to continue doing that. And the other is a uh, new ministry are, we are starting called Chosen People Bible Institute. And this is going to be a ministry to the English-speaking world, uh, churches with, uh, I think, actually fairly, fairly deep teaching, but at a very accessible level without a lot of homework designed for uh, busy people who have busy lives, but really want to delve in deeply into the Word of God and also to get to know more about what the Scriptures say from a Jewish perspective. So our school is uh, kind of unique in that regard in that it follows this approach and it's from a Messianic Jewish perspective. We're not trying to get accredited or anything like that, but the teaching is high quality. And uh, we have six courses in development, and we're planning to start advertising those courses in January. Um, it's been a long-term project. We've got two courses up right now, plus a promotional course, but we really haven't been advertising them. So that's what I've been doing for the last while. Um, and I guess, there we go. I've been doing some writing too. We flashed right by that, which is fine. Um, I, I've got some books at the back. One is um, called Derech Yeshua, The Way of Salvation, which describes the gospel through Jewish eyes. The other is a book on understanding Jewish people. And the third one is a book on 
um, which is, this is obscure, and it's for geeks, but it's my, it's my doctoral dissertation. And so it's, based, it's basically arguing that the, new, that the early believers, this is outside of the New Testament information, but the early Jewish believers were quite clear that as the gospel was going forth to the nations, it was not a gospel of law. And the nations do not need to keep they do not need to keep circumcision or do circumcision, do not need to keep the kosher laws, and, and do not need to keep the Jewish festivals or the Sabbath. Um, and so I argue that this is the position of the early believers in the early church. And it's an important one because there are many people who believe that one should. And as believers, we're all free to do that, but... Uh, I don't believe we are mandated to. And so, um, especially those who are not Jewish, clearly not mandated to keep those laws. So that's an important, uh, you know, I felt that was an important thing for me to write on. So now we're going to go to the feasts of Israel. And um, the feasts of Israel are, are, we've already had our introduction in the Passover that we've had in the past. And as was mentioned, we've never really gone over them in detail um, apart from the spring feasts. And so by way of introduction, um, could probably go to the next slide. Uh, by way of introduction, it's worth noting something that we may have just glanced over quickly when we looked at Passover a year and a half ago and probably t seven or eight or ten years before that, and um, whatever it was, um, it's very clear from the New Testament that Jesus celebrated a last supper with his disciples and he died to the day as the Passover lamb. That seems to be really clear in the Gospels. There are some... You know, scholars will debate the chronology of everything, but it seems pretty clear that the symbology of Passover on the, where the lamb is sacrificed on the evening of the 14th of the first month of the year, that that is fulfilled in Jesus who dies on the eve of Passover. And remember, they have to take his body down from the cross so that he might not be hanging on the cross over the festival. And so he's buried in a tomb. So the symbology of Passover, Passover is the story of redemption. This is where God purchases the people of Israel to be him, his own. It's, it's different than atonement, which we'll get to later, where he covers sins. But this is where God purchases the people of Israel with the blood of the Passover lamb. And Jesus, to the day, on the same day of the year, on the Jewish calendar, purchases with his blood our lives. He, he purchases our redemption. We are redeemed because of what Jesus did as the Passover lamb, to the day. If we turn to Leviticus chapter 23, we'd see in verse 9 and 10 that um, 
and 11 particularly, that on the day after the Sabbath that occurs during the week of unleavened bread. So you have Passover, and then following it, you have seven days of unleavened bread. You don't eat anything with any leaven in it. The Sabbath that occurs, and some people say that is the Saturday, and other people interpret it differently, but however it is, we know that on the day after the Sabbath, when um, the Lord had been crucified, he rose from the dead. The day after the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, is the first day of the week. Jesus rose from the dead on the very first day of the week. And what's the symbology of that? Is that the first day of the week is what the Lord tells Israel to do, to bring a sheaf of first fruits to the priest. It's a first fruits um, celebration. It's when the very first things come up. And in Israel, the season starts very early. So by the time you're at the end of March, when Passover is, there's already some things that you have as first fruits. And by the time, I'll get to that later. Uh, Later on, in a few weeks later, there's more. Um, Jesus rises from the dead on the very day of first fruits, the first day of the week, the day after the Sabbath. He is called by Paul the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. It's, it's something that sometimes we miss, but it's God fulfilling the meaning of these holidays on the very day of the year that that holiday is celebrated in Jesus our Savior. The other thing that happens on that first day is we start counting down 50 days towards a day called Shavuot, or in English, Pentecost. It's the 50-day festival. Shavuot simply means weeks in Hebrew. Um, We know very clearly what happened on that day of Pentecost. Um, That day in biblical, in the Bible, is also a feast of first fruits. We read in, um, in verse 15, Leviticus 23 and verse 15 and following, that this is a celebration where we celebrate the harvest of our land in verse 22. And I, this is where you do have a big harvest. It's not the big harvest of the year, but the first things in the land really now, you really do have a big harvest and a lot of things um, are, are able to be reaped in that time. This um, is to be a, har- a harvest festival that Israel keeps throughout its generations. It's on that 50th day, which is symbolic. Because remember, there's this year of jubilee thing where every 50 years, all the slaves get released It's very symbolic. Here, 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits, we celebrate the harvest coming in. And what happens, but on that very day, 
there is the first large harvest, 3,000 souls that are saved and immersed on that very day and become the first church. It's an amazing time. Uh, many people say this is the day that the church began, and, and absolutely that's correct, because this, this, there's something new that God is doing in the world, because this is going to be a community of believers, whereas before the community of believers was confined to the Jewish people, this is going to become the community of all nations. And so it's noted that some of the people that became believers on that day were not Jews. They were proselytes. They were those who were God-fearers, and they became believers on that day. So the three spring festivals are all fulfilled on that day. The Feast of Redemption, the Feast of First Fruits, and the Feast of Pentecost which is also a day on which, over historical time, Jewish people had begun to celebrate how God gave the law and established a covenant with Israel. On that very day, um, God really sealed his covenant, his new covenant with Israel and those from the commonwealth of the nations, those brought into the commonwealth of Israel at that time. So that's the spring feasts, and it's so fascinating to see that all three of them are fulfilled on the very day. And now we're going to talk about the fall feasts, and we're going to see how they are fulfilled. Now, the fall feasts are not referenced in the New Testament as having been fulfilled in Jesus in the same way as the spring feasts. And so many of us are looking forward. They have a strong prophetic element that speaks about the second coming of the Lord. And, and we are tempted to extrapolate and say, if the first ones were all fulfilled to the day, then, wow, maybe the fall feasts will all be fulfilled to the day as well. We don't know that for sure. Um, it's extrapolation. It, it's not in black and white in the scripture, but it's a hope that many people have. But this does bring us to the Feast of Trumpets. Rosh Hashanah, we call it. Rosh means head, and Shanah means year. Hashanah is the year, the head of the year. This is what we call this festival. And this is the first of the fall festivals. And what we'll do today is we'll talk about this first festival. And then tomorrow we'll continue with the second and third festivals so that we'll have all the fall festivals. It ends with the fourth festival that's kind of part of the third festival. So we'll end with that tomorrow. And we'll, we'll see how they point towards the Lord's return and how they point towards the Lord bringing all nations uh, to the foot of Jesus' throne. That's going to be an exciting day. And we're looking forward to it. So Rosh Hashanah, uh, we see it in Leviticus 23, verse 23, the Feast of Trumpets. 
And there we read, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no ordinary work and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. So this is a, an, a festival that God commands Israel to do. And he says, you're going to present an offering to the Lord on the first day of the seventh month. Now, Passover begins on the 15th day of the first month. So this is, seven, this is six months later. On the first day of the seventh month, you are to celebrate this feast and you're to make an offering to the Lord and blow trumpets, which is great. Kids love to go and blow trumpets. I don't know, Gary, if you have a shofar, maybe you could bring it tomorrow. <laughs> He can blow a shofar. Oh, yeah. All right. Okay. Well, we'll have to hear a shofar sometime this weekend. <laughs> um, that would be awesome. Okay. Uh, but um, this is the thing. They're told to blow a shofar, which sounds great, but there's no explanation why. The others seem kind of logical. Uh, Passover, you know, it's a night we commemorate the night of Passover when God passed over the houses of Israel and redeemed us with the blood of the sacrificed lamb. Oh, wow. Okay, great. We'll let James do that. There we go. <laughs> okay, beautiful. Um, then, you know, and first fruits, yeah, we're, you know, we're thanking God for our first fruits and the first harvest festival, thanking God for the harvest. All of that has an explanation. This, just blow a trumpet. And so we might ask why. You know, nowadays in Jewish tradition, oh, there we go, I went too far. Um, in Jewish tradition, we'll blow the trumpet, we will uh, have apples and honey because Jewish people consider this day to be the beginning of the year, um, the civil year, not, not the religious year because that's on the month of Passover, but the beginning of the civil year. So we wish each other a new year. And also Jewish people are at this point on this festival beginning to look ahead to the next festival, which is a time of meeting to God, meeting with God and repenting. And so Jewish people are beginning to repent for their sins and, and will greet each other and say, may you be inscribed for a good year. May you be written in, up for a good year in, by the Lord. And there'll be more on that tomorrow. This is such a serious thing that many Jewish people will, um, if they're religious, will go to a river. And this is a tradition called tashlich, the casting away of sins. And they'll go to a river, and there's a couple prayers, but it's not the prayers that are important here. It's the tradition of taking what's in your pockets. And so people will make, they won't put their car keys in their pocket <laughs> that day, um, especially those new electronic ones. Um, they, they'll put rocks or pennies or bread in their pocket, and will go and throw that into the river or a lake or a ocean. It has to be living water, water that has, could have fish in it. And the whole idea is we cast our, it's like casting our sins away. 
And maybe you've heard the uh, teaching, you know, it's sometimes very helpful for people who are uh, working on renouncing old hurts, for example, or renouncing uh, sins that have been binding them to, you know, write, write those things on a piece of paper and then burn them or throw them in the, in the toilet or something like that and flush them away and get rid of them. It's that, that, it's that action of saying, I want to get rid of these sins. I want to live for God. And then Jewish people will take the week to try and get right with all of their friends all of their enemies, particularly, make sure all of their relationships are good because the next festival is a time when they come to meet God. And some will even go to the extent of immersion. And immersion is something that is ritual. Um, it's not to wash away sins in Jewish thinking, but it is an a, a, uh, attempt to become spiritually pure. You know, washing, it is the washing of the outside of the cup. And Jesus says, you know, you got to, when you wash the outside of the cup, what really matters is what's inside the cup. And actually, Jewish people in Jesus' day understood that too. No one argued with him that day when he pointed that out to the Pharisees. Um, when you are immersed, it's great to be clean, but what's the point of it if your heart is filthy? That was understood. But, and so at the Feast of Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, from this time on, people will be using this time to try and purify their ways and get ready to meet with God. Um, it is a new year. We go on, though, beyond the traditions. You can see there are some... Uh, oh, we'll go back. Oh, we need to go back. There we go. A sovereignty of God. Um, when we get to, uh, we, apart from the traditions we've developed, there's been, of course, there's been a lot of study of the scripture. And one of the things that uh, Jewish people have really focused on is the sovereignty of God on this day. Because what do trumpets do? They announce something that is to be respected, something that has to be heard. And God has to be heard. God has to be respected. And we wonder why blow trumpets at this point? The point is that when Israel arrived at the mountain of God in the wilderness, remember they're delivered from Egypt. Seven weeks later, you can look at it in the New Testament, add all the dates together. It's about seven weeks later. They arrive at the mountain of God in the wilderness, and they hear the sound of a trumpet that is getting louder and louder, and it terrifies them, and it's a voice that they cannot understand. And they say to Moses, you go up onto this mountain or we will die. And they're right. God says, yeah, they're right. Make sure they don't go up the mountain. Um, it, they become face to face with God after 430 years as slaves in Egypt, where they have become increasingly Egyptianized and have barely remembered the God of their fathers. After 430 years, God has reminded them who he is through the ten plagues, and now they have come to the mountain of God in the wilderness, and for the first time, they've actually seen something that shows them God is here. 
God is real. Up till then, it's been Moses and Aaron who have done everything. Now they see God. They are coming face to face with him. And they are right to be terrified. And we look at these early Israelites who came out of Egypt, and we, we are sometimes really critical of them, and there are definitely things to be criticized. But we have to remember they came from essential paganism to being faced with the one true God, and they really needed to understand who he was. So God makes sure that they know he is king. They're terrified by the sound of the trumpet. They realize that it is at that mountain that God establishes his covenant with Israel. That covenant is revealed in what we call the Torah or the law, but um, it's more than just a list of do's and don'ts and rules. It is actually a relational document. You look at the five books of Moses, most of it is telling the story of Israel. This is where they went. This is where they came from. These are their ancestors. This is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is how Moses uh, taught. And, you know, even the family issues Moses had um, are written up in the five books of Moses. And they're this, it's this um, the relational document that God has with Israel. And it's, it's a covenant that God made with Israel at the mountain. And so when we come face to face with God, if we're half sane, we, realize, we also come face to face with our inadequacy. And, and there's a need for us uh, to fall down before him. And sometimes even today, um, I've never actually witnessed it myself, but there are some who will actually uh, lie down on the floor in the synagogue on this day as they come face to face with God. Um, it is a time to remember our sins. And so those are all considered lessons that we can learn from the shofar. Now, this is a nice, beautiful shofar. Um, it is twisted and bent. And you'll see on the next slide... Um, the shofar is actually bent a little bit more than it actually is on the ram. This is from an ibis ram, by the way, from Egypt, uh, or from actually, uh, I think, sub-Saharan Africa, possibly. But it's not an indigenous Israeli ram. Those horns are much smaller, um, and those are probably the ones that they were using in biblical times. But nevertheless... Um, whichever kind of ram's horn you use, it's always twisted a little bit more. It's steamed, it's cleaned, it's polished on the outside usually, and definitely cleaned on the inside, otherwise they get very smelly. Um, but, but the horn, as it's bent, is twisted so that we might partly remember that when we come before God, we don't come proudly uh, strutting in front of him. But it is an le object lesson to us to come humbly before God. And he is our Abba Father. He's also our King. And, and you know, our Abba Fathers also, we love them dearly, but there's always that respect 
And, and that's how we are to be before God. The other, another aspect of this is that this um, shofar reminds us by its sound of that day of atonement that is coming, that day of meeting with God to deal with our sins. And that's a, that is a serious thing. So the saying has been coined on the basis of Psalm 89 and verse 15, uh, happy is the people that knows how to make peace with their creator through the sound of the shofar. And um, the sound of the shofar is not something particularly special. It's kind of unique, but it's not a magical sound. It's cool, you could say. Um, it's not the sound that means anything. But what really matters is that this sound from the shofar evokes a response to us. You can be walking along in Jerusalem someday, you know, and hear the sound of the shofar on the Feast of Trumpets. And if you don't pay any attention to it, it's not going to be of any value to, to you. It's not going to make a difference in your life. It only makes a difference when you pay attention to it. Um, another example of this is, for example, the serpent that is lifted up by Moses in the wilderness. That serpent was lifted up so that everyone could see it. But the scripture is clear that it was those that gazed upon the serpent that were healed from their snake bites. Um, there's a lesson there. People could just see out of their corner of the eye that there's a serpent, a bronze serpent, being held up on a stick in the, you know, on a, in, in, in the middle of the camp. And they could have just noticed it. I don't think the Bible is implying that those people would have automatically been saved from their snake bite, just from the awareness. But it was those that gazed upon the serpent. In the New Testament, the same is true for us. For example, there are people who've heard the gospel, know the gospel. There are many people who could preach the gospel, but they don't believe it. Um, and James says in James chapter 2 and verse 19 that don't think that because you believe that's got any value. He says even the demons believe. And of course, yes, Satan knows who Jesus is. Um, his demons believe. They know he rose from the dead, but it's got no value. Even the demons believe and tremble. But we need to be those who look with faith. And this is the message. When we hear the good news, when we hear the gospel, it's not just a matter of intellectual assent or knowledge that we've gained. It is a matter of us having put our faith in God and in Jesus, his appointed Messiah. And so... That's maybe a good place to blow the shofar if you want, James. <laughs> okay. Thank you. That's great. Thank you. That was a tequila and most of a trua. <laughs> the tequila is the long one and the trua is the short notes. Um, 
and, uh, we, and there's also something called Shavarim. There's nine very staccato little, little blasts. But um, thank you. Um, that is the sound that someday we, I believe we will hear. You know, Jesus came and he said, repent for the kingdom is at hand. And we know that he came in order to call the people of Israel to repentance. And he genuinely offered the kingdom. I'm sure that was a genuine offer. God is not a trickster. But he knew in his foreknowledge that that acceptance of Jesus would not happen. God had his plan to bring good out of the evil that would follow so that there would be blessing for all nations, for all of us. And Jesus came saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was, in essence, a type of uh, call of the shofar. Because the prophets say, in I think it's Amos, I get confused, Amos and Joel, uh, both talk about the trumpet, but uh, I think it's Amos who says that the voice of the prophets is like the voice of a trumpet. When you hear the voice of a trumpet in ancient biblical times, it was a time to uh, take note. And that's because when you would hear it would be when the watchers were on the walls of the cities. And if they saw the enemy that was coming in the distance, and in those days enemies came by foot, and unless they were sending the cavalry ahead by themselves, which would be on, of no use, the whole army would walk, would come to, you know, conquer a town at walking pace. So you could see the army 10 or 20 miles away coming. You blow the shofar. People would have time, lots of time, to seek shelter, to gather their things, to get out of the way of danger. Uh, but the sound of the shofar was a sound of alarm. And it is, that is the voice of the prophet. And in a sense, that's the voice of Jesus saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's also the voice of John saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So that the people of Israel might understand that we need to repent. We need to turn to God away from our evil deeds. Um, the, the offer of the kingdom was made. And, the, and it was made maybe symbolically with the voice of Jesus, the greatest of all prophets, um, prophet, priest, and king, uh, announcing to the world, that the kingdom was at hand. It will be made again one day when the Lord returns, because we read that the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the trumpet of God. And that's a great day that we're really looking forward to when Jesus returns and we hear a shofar sound, something like we just heard, and... You know, nowadays we surmise on our smartphones, we, uh, you know, around the world, wherever people are, they are aware that the Lord is returning. And it is going to be a, a fantastic, amazing event that is going to inaugurate his kingdom because it's very clear in the, new, in the Old Testament and the New that the messianic kingdom is inaugurated with 
which is started by the sound of a trumpet. And that is the sound that we are all waiting for. So Jewish people have four different New Year's that they account for. One is this feast of um, trumpets. The other one is, another one is um, on the first of the month of Nisan, just before Passover. That's considered the beginning of the, spir- the spiritual year. Another one is in the spring, when the sap starts to flow in the trees. Um, it's called the New Year for Trees. And the other one is on the first of Elul, which is later in the year, which is a month where we start to turn our hearts towards God. And all of these are are important in a sense. Most important, uh, though, is this call at this time, maybe the first day of the seventh month, but nevertheless, it is the call to repentance. On this day, the trumpet is blown 100 times in the synagogue. People hear the sound of the shofar, and it is a sound that the Jewish people, particularly as well as all peoples in the world today, need to hear. Um, With that, I think we've got 10 or 15 minutes or so. It depends how it goes, but um, I'm thinking you might like to ask some questions about this feast. Um, We're going to have a session tomorrow morning in the Sunday school where we're going to talk a little bit about what is happening right now in Israel. Um, And, uh, you know, some of you are very well informed, but I think all of us have questions. And and so we're going to talk about that a little bit tomorrow. But um, if you have any question about what is uh, what this feast is or, and what these feasts mean. Well, the Jewish calendar runs on a lunar month and it's kept in place by reference to the solar calendar. So every two to four years, usually two to three years, there's an extra month thrown into the Jewish calendar to keep this month in the right place to keep all the months in the right place. Um, but this month comes, it's, it's the new moon that usually occurs late September. It's sometimes it can be early October. But it, it'll be on the new moon. Yeah, so... so you, Oh, yeah, yeah, we were talking about that last night. It's quite fascinating because the new moon is, um, it marks the beginning of a new month. And the way, and the Lord says on the first day of every month, there's to be a special offering given to him, uh, to the Lord. And so in biblical times and in Jesus' time, uh, you would determine when the month began by visual observation. And there would be four witnesses in Jerusalem um, who had to be people of good repute who would uh, see the new moon. And when they saw it, 
then they could issue the signal to the priests and a beacon would be lit. All this was prearranged. A beacon would be lit at the temple in Jerusalem. And then far away in the distance, but where someone could see by line of sight, would be another one. And they would light that fire when they saw the fire in Jerusalem lit. And there were a chain of these um, fire st spotting stations with um, bonfires already set all the way from Jerusalem to the city of Babylon. Because in Jesus' day, um, Babylon was still a major Jewish center. The Jewish people never did all return from Babylon. Uh, that community actually survived until about 1951-54 or so, um, when it came to an end. But until then, that community was there. And in Jesus' day, it was a big, important community. And so the, the signal fires would go all the way, um, up through Syria and across to the, the Fertile Crescent, and within hours, the people in Babylon would know that it was a new moon in Jerusalem. And, and they would then be able to commemorate the first day of the new month. And so it's quite an amazing feat that they had in that day. On top of it, um, uh, well, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. But, it, you know, it became, it became a, a big issue as, as history went on between um, Babylon and the people in Israel, uh, how, you know, who was most authoritative after the temple was destroyed as to when the new month would be um, declared. So eventually that system, when it became obsolete with the Muslims um, overrunning the whole Middle East, when that system became obsolete, we switched to a mathematical model. So there's no more signal fires anymore. But um, yeah, that, that was how it was all determined. Yeah. Yes. Right. It's, it's um, that I believe that Jesus was legitimately offering to come and take his throne as king of Israel, but um, also specifically knew that that offer would not be taken up and did not uh, intend it to be taken up because his offer was to extend his kingdom to all the nations of the world. So if Israel had, however, accepted the kingdom of God at that time, and, and we shouldn't cast them all as unreceptive, because remember, thousands are being baptized by John and then more by Jesus' disciples. Um, they, these are people who want to get ready for God's kingdom. Um, but, but um, you know, if, is, if Israel had as a whole accepted that, that we would have had that kingdom, um, the fact that Israel was, didn't accept the kingdom means that Jesus did not take his throne as king in Jerusalem. And as a result, um, 
was able to, you know, become our, our sacrifice for sin. And that, and that way salvation could be extended to all nations as well as Israel through his blood. I hope I'm making sense. I feel like I'm scattered in my response. But, yeah. I, 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 oh, in extension, I also think that when the Jewish people um, find out he is the Messiah and do recognize him, that will be a source of tremendous grief because we will then have the knowledge that 2,000 years we have been persecuted and, and suffered for our sins um, as a people, and that wouldn't have happened if we'd accepted Jesus as our Messiah. We still would have been sinners, but we would have been, you know, protected by our King. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, the word for trumpets in the book of Revelation, I, I think is speaking of silver trumpets or golden trumpets. I don't think it's the shofar at that point. Um, there were golden trumpets in the temple that were used, and there's a different word for them. It's not, a, not at the tip of my tongue now, but um, I, I, don't, I don't think it's a shofar in, in the New Testament. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in the Old Testament, it's very clear. You know, the shofar is sounded when the Lord returns, and the word there is clearly shofar. Um, it's really kind of, it's almost out of place, but it's very clearly the sound of the shofar. And we, that's this kind of trumpet, not the silver kind of trumpet that, that they had as well. Silver or gold, metal trumpet. Yes, Karen. Right. Um, the the um, teruah, which is the three blasts, is considered kind of a wailing sound. The tikiah is a, which is the long blast, and the tikiah gedolah, which is as long as the person can make it till they run out of breath. Uh, that blast is considered a time to um, pay attention to the Lord. And I think also the Shevarim, the nine, is three times three. Um, I think also that's considered a, 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 a reminder of, of um, our need to repent at that point. But if that's by my, I, I couldn't say for sure. I know pretty, pretty for sure about the three, though, as the wailing sound it's considered. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's to put us in, in, to, in the frame of mind of, of penitence, you know, wailing about our sins. And, and actually, uh, from the Feast of Trumpets until the Day of Atonement, every single day people will, if they're religious, will, li will list their sins and confess them before the Lord. Um, and, and the hope is that God will be merciful. But, uh, you know, <laughs> it's the name of Jesus by whom we shall be saved, by which we shall be saved. Yeah.
Yes, Bill. Uh, the tabernacle. Yeah. When it was to move out, I mean, there'd be blasts on the shore. Right. Um, I think then it was just a sign of announcement and, you know, processional thing. But it's also, I think, used as a sign of God's presence. And so when the children of Israel walk around Jericho seven times and then blow the shofar, and again, it's the word shofar that is used, so we know it's the ram's horn. Um, at that time, it's very much a sign that God is intervening and God is going to do something here and, and act. And he does, of course, in that occasion. So, yeah. So, anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, this feast really does set the stage for the next two. And when we get to the Day of Atonement uh, tomorrow, um, uh, we really see the difference um, between the redemption that began on the 15th of the month of during the first month, which is Passover, to and the connection between that with the atonement that God provides Israel now when they come to him and put faith in him. So Israel didn't become his people just because they were brought out of Egypt across the Red Sea, but they became his people when they stood at the mountain of God in the wilderness and formed a covenant with him. But he already owned them, and they knew it. Um, but, but that's when he entered into covenant. And it's kind of that way with us. You know, God uh, calls us, we hear his voice, but when we hear his voice, we need to establish that relationship with him. We need to um, honor him as our Lord. Yeah, so anything else? I think we're, we're good. If you have any other questions, I'll be at the back. Um, I've got some, you know, if you want to get my prayer letter, you're more than welcome to put your name on the sign-up sheet there. And um, we've got some brochures, and there's some books from our ministry that I wrote that are for sale. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Okay.